Investors podcast. So welcome to the Knowledge Nights show. And before we proceed, I would love to introduce you, like who we have today. We have Dr. Neil Silverman, and he's a research scientist at University of Massachusetts Medical School. Um, he has studied at UC Berkeley, MIT, and Harvard, like all the great schools, to pursue his career. And he has published over 73 research papers from his lab and have been actively involved with research on Rosophilia melanogaster and its innate immune system. Uh, my, my pleasure. Nice to, nice to meet you both and talk with you. So we want to talk about your profession, your journey, like mainly for people who are aspiring to go into research field and lab. And, sure. uh, and yeah, some of your life instances. So before we proceed, a quick introduction about my background and Pratham's background, who's the co-host here. So I'm currently um, a final year student and I'm pursuing literature from Delhi, India. And apart from that, I've been into debating and I wish to pursue a career personally in advertising. So yeah, that's just like pretty much about right. me. Literature. Pratham. Uh, so hello, hello, Dr. Neil. Uh, I'm Pratham, uh, and I'm a high school student uh, studying biology, and I wish to pursue research, uh, uh, research degree uh, further. So I'm very, very excited uh, to have a talk with you. So let's get started with the first question. Uh, I really want to you know, um, deep dive into your journey and how you la uh, land up in this research field of immunology. Really like to know that. Yeah. Uh... So how I ended up in immunology is a little bit accidental, but my like larger journey, starting with how I got interested in life sciences, biology, goes back to when I was in high school and I, I took some lots of all the science classes my high school offered, which was the usual chemistry, physics, biology. I think that was about it. And uh, I really liked biology. It was just really fascinating. I re remember learning very sort of elementary things about how DNA encoded genes and genes got transcribed into RNA and thinking how marvelous it was and how amazing it is that you got to turn all these things, all these genes on and off at all the right times. And it just really sparked my um, fascination. So when I went to, um, when I went to university, um, I, I headed off intending to study molecular biology. Uh, and I, I stuck with that. I'd say like, you know, in the educational system in the United States, which is maybe different from India, people often, students often switch their, their majors in large degrees, you know, in large, in large swings. You know, they come in thinking they're gonna be, go to medical school and they're gonna study biology or chemistry or some hard science and they decide halfway through their freshman year that it's not for them and they study literature and they end up being lawyers or you know, there's lots of lots of changes but I was uh, I was very focused um, and I stuck with my original plans of studying um, molecular biology I got involved what was key for me was getting involved in the research lab as an undergraduate um, that's what I always um, encourage students to do when I when I when they ask me uh, about how to how to get involved in research and how to become a researcher the first thing you have to do is to find out if you actually like doing research because research laboratory research can be tough um, you know we have um, we have experiments we have hypotheses that we're testing and we're trying to do experiments and sometimes the hypotheses are just wrong 
I mean, our ideas are just wrong and you have to be ready to accept that. Other times your experiments don't work for other reasons that you, not because your hypothesis is wrong, but because the experimental design was, was uh, not able to really address the question or you weren't able to generate the tools or reagents um, that you need to do the experiments. And so it can, it can, be, it can be frustrating and there's a lot of, there's a lot of failure in, in bench science and a lot, you spend a lot of time troubleshooting, trying to figure out why your experiment's not working the way you, you think it should. Uh, so it's, it's not, people can love life science and not, and, not like, and not like actually being experimental biologists because it's, um, it's, it, can be, uh, it can be challenging mentally mentally challenging. So I always encourage uh, students to try and get involved in research when they go to university. You know, when I was in university, we didn't have, email wasn't the thing that everybody used all the time. So I literally had to just go knock on some doors and make some phone calls um, to find myself uh, my first research position. And uh, I was lucky and privileged and my first research position was um, was a summer position in a laboratory actually at UCLA because I grew up in Los Angeles. And uh, so it was one summer when I was home and it turned out to be a friend of, the, a friend of a friend who was a faculty member at UCLA and I called him up and he was happy to have me come work in the lab for the summer and I, had a, I really liked it. So although it's not for everybody, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed, um, you know, at the beginning you just sort of learn how to do things in the laboratory and I, I, I enjoyed you know, growing up plasmids and growing cells and counting plaques, doing very basic stuff. Um, but it was just so much fun to be in the lab and, and trying to discover new things. And then I went back to Berkeley. That term, and I, um, I got up, uh, I knocked on some more doors and I got a position in a lab um, studying developmental biology. So I was doing developmental biology in, uh, with uh, frogs, with Xenopis lavis, which is a African clawed toad frog, maybe. I don't remember what it's called anymore. And so for a couple of years there, I was a budding developmental biologist. And then I went off to, um, and when I was finishing university, I, I liked the lab and I, I really liked this idea, almost romantic idea of, of being involved in, in discovering new things. That just seemed like where I wanted to be. I wasn't interested in making a lot of money. I wasn't interested in making a product. I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to, discover things that just seemed like uh, I think I was definitely a bit of a romantic that just seemed like that's the place I wanted to be and um, so that's that's what graduate school's for you actually have to discover something to earn a doctorate you have to discover something and write a thesis and about your discovery and then defend your ideas so I applied to graduate school uh, you know I applied to quite a few and I decided since I stayed on the west coast for um, for my university days, I decided to go to the East Coast for graduate school and I went to, I went to MIT. I had a few good options, so I could stay on the West Coast. My, my parents were kind of mad at me um, for, for going back East. I thought it'd only be for like five or six years. And that was 30 years ago, I'm still here. So the program that I went to in graduate school, it wasn't, it was a biology program, but it wasn't focused. There was all sorts of things, developmental biology, immunology, neurobiology, bio 
protein biochemistry, a huge range of possibilities. And that's what, one of the reasons that particular program was at MIT appealed to me because I didn't have to decide that I wanted to be a developmental biologist when I was 22, or I wanted to be an immunologist or a, a yeast geneticist. I, I could sample a bunch of things, take classes that first year, sample different opportunities in different labs and decide which lab I wanted to settle on. So that's what I did. I went out there and um, for my graduate work, I, I did something totally different from the year or so I spent doing developmental, trying to do developmental biology. When I was an undergrad, I, um, I worked with a kind of yeast called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. This is actually the yeast that we use to make bread and make beer. Um, and it's a favorite genetic, molecular and genetic uh, experimental system that's used in labs all, o- all over the world. It's very, it's very powerful. It has a haploid genome, which means it has one copy of each chromosome. Uh, at least it can't have two because it can mate and become a diploid, but there's a haploid form. You do lots of experiments in the haploid form. It makes the genetics really simple because you don't have to worry about two copies of the gene. And in graduate school, I, I worked on a problem about how genes got get turned on and off. So this is, they get, genes get transcribed. So the DNA gets transcribed into the RNA and to turn a gene on, the first thing you need to do is make that RNA copy that's called transcription. And we worked on how uh, transcription was activated. So genes can be not transcribed or transcribed to very, very high levels. And we were under, trying to understand how that, how you got that high level, how genes got turned on to these high levels. and. It's a process called transcriptional activation. And it was, it was very, especially at the beginning, it was super fun. We, there was a lot of things we didn't know. And we devised, a, I was part of a team and we devised a, a, a forward genetic screen to look for mutants that were defective in turning genes on in general. We found some interesting genes and then I kind of settled in trying to understand what one of those genes and the protein that it encoded, that it made, did. That was what I did for my graduate work. It was an interesting few years, um, but we tried to figure out how it worked. Our progress was slow and kind of baby steps. I think we were able to show it was really involved in something about the transcriptional process, but we didn't really understand how, how it did that. And we weren't thinking about chromatin at all. So DNA is wrapped in, in, in up in these tight bundles called chromatin and the key protein in the chromatin unit is, is a histone. And we weren't thinking too much about the histones and the chromatin. We were thinking more about like what DNA would do when it was more naked. And another group, a group in Rochester from, from Davis Alice working in a totally different system, working in a totally different system. Um, right when I was finishing up my PhD, had a had a paper publication that kind of blew open the whole field and really changed the way we think about all everything that we were doing. And in particular, they were working um, with a single cell eukaryotic organism called tetrahymena, which has a lot of very interesting biology. And they've been working on that in years. And they'd noticed in tetrahymena that genes that were transcribed, that were actively transcribed, the histones around that gene were uh, acetylated. And they went out and purified, biochemically purified a protein that acetylated the histones. And it turned out that their histone acetyltransferase, that's, that's what that enzyme's called, was one of, the, one of the genes that we had gotten in our screen. And we'd actually, in our screen, gotten a whole bunch of genes that form a big complex um, that are involved in 
we know now, uh, modifying histones in particular, acetylating histones. They do some other things to histones too. And it's this acetylating the histones that um, is critical for turning, allowing genes to be uh, transcribed. And it's, that's a huge field now. I'm not involved in that field anymore, but that was the, that was the very early days. By the time I graduated, finished defending my thesis, I was kind of tired of transcription. It's a very competitive field. I, I, felt, I felt abused, quite frankly. And um, I was looking for something else. I still like science. I still like this idea of discovering new things. And I was looking for some area um, to move into that was more, a little bit more open, a little bit more new, certainly new to me. And um, at first I, I, I started thinking about getting into microbial pathogenesis. So this is how, um, say, bacteria or viruses, how they cause disease, how they infect cells and, and cause disease in particular, like the, the virulence mechanisms the, um, that really make animals, people, cells sick. Um, I started looking around in that, and, and quite frankly, I didn't find a good opportunity for a postdoc in that, in that area. I was, I was interested in staying in Boston um, area at that time for personal reasons, and I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't find any opportunities that I really loved. So I, I branched out a little bit, and I said, well, I'm interested in this, how microbes make, make cells and animals so sick. What, how do, and I got interested in how animals respond and animal cells respond. And of course, that's what the immune response is. And of course, pathogenesis or disease is, a, is always a, something about the balance or the battle between the microbe on the one hand and the host cell and the host on the other hand. And I think, you know, if I can diverge into current events, we see that right now with, with COVID, like the people who get the sickest and the people who die from COVID are not dying because the virus is taking over the body. For the most part, by the time you're deathly ill and those fraction of patients that become deathly ill, the virus is gone. And it's the damage that the immune response that's, has done to your body trying to fight that virus that actually is so detrimental. So it's really, the way I think about it, it's really two sides of, of one coin. You have the, 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 the microbe attacking the host and the host trying to attack the microbe and sometimes the tools to attack the microbe are very specific and really win that battle but sometimes they're non-specific and there's a lot of a lot of damage that happens and that, that I got really interested in that kind of two sides of that coin and I started looking around for opportunities in um, what we call innate immunity which is um, the part of our immune system our immune response I should say that uh, doesn't involve uh, antibodies and T cell receptors, so-called uh, recombinant antigen receptors, but instead relies on receptors that are hard-coded into our genome. So um, that's sort of how I got in, into immunology, sort of, it was a very circuitous sort of route. And I, I started looking for opportunities in innate immunity at that time. And there was a, it was a budding field because it was very, I, I graduated um, my PhD in 1996. And in 1989, I think, a very famous immunologist from Yale, Charlie Janeway, published uh, a very famous paper now in a Cold Spring Harbor uh, journal about how immunologists and immunology as a field was ignoring the innate immune response and how this innate immune response and innate triggers were critical for driving an antibody response. So critical for 
making a good vaccine and that we needed to try and understand how that worked. We use these things called adjuvants, but we didn't really understand how they worked. That was his, his classic example. And he, he theorized on how this might occur. And, you know, I started reading this, his work and that paper and, and follow-up papers as him and other people started to try and tackle this um, important question. It was really fascinating about the same time and inspired by his, his thoughts, a couple groups in Europe uh, started working on Drosophila immune responses as a, uh, a model system to study innate immunity. So Drosophila and insects in general, generally don't have um, what the opposite of an innate immune response is something we call the acquired immune response. So insects generally don't have an acquired immune response. There's some exceptions where some invertebrates have some pretty funky things, but no insects have B cells and T cells and RAG genes and somatic recombination like, like we do. And they generally don't rely on recombinant antigen receptors to detect pathogens. So it was this, but they do have an immune response. It was quite clear. And the, the critical work was actually done in the 1970s by a guy in Stockholm named Hans Bohmann. And he, he noticed that like, if you infect the fly a little bit and then come back a couple of days later, infect it with a lot of bacteria that would normally kill it, the flies were protected. And he, he noticed this protection. And from that, he went on to purify and isolate and clone uh, a group of small proteins called antimicrobial peptides. Interesting. Uh, and I think 2011 Nobel Prize in medicine, uh, medicine, I think went to uh, innate immuno immunology, I think uh, 2011 Nobel Prize. Yep, that's right. So that was... Um, and one of the winners of that prize was uh, Jules Hoffman. And he is uh, yeah. one of the other pioneers in this field. Like, so Hans really came first. And I always thought Hans should be included in the Nobel Prize, but he was not. Um, and he discovered these antimicrobial peptides. And then Jules and, um, in France and a number of labs in Sweden, all of whom had trained in Hans's, uh, Hans Beaumont's group. And interestingly, Jules had also done like a sabbatical in Hans's group. I think his, his wife originally went to Hans's group to work for a year. And then Jules, I think, came for the summer and got really inspired and came, went back to Strasbourg and, and refocused his group on the same, same area. Hans had discovered these peptides. And going back to like what I, what I studied in graduate school, these antimicrobial peptide genes. So they're encoded by genes. In a healthy animal, they're basically not transcribed. They're basically almost completely off. And then if you infect the fly or immune challenge fly, those genes get induced a hundred, a thousand fold. It's really a massive induction of those genes. Um, so I was interested in starting my postdoc and Jules Hoffman, who won the Nobel Prize and uh, a number of labs, including Hans Bohmann and Hockensteiner and Elva Engström in, in Sweden, where we're, we're everybody was kind of fascinated by this question, how do these genes get turned on by the immune response? And Jules went on to do critical work showing that the toll pathway was really important um, for part of that response. Um, the work, some, some of the key work in his lab, I wanna just um, make sure I, I mentioned some of the key people who did the work, but Bruno Lemaitre, who's in uh, Lausanne now in, in Switzerland has his own group. Uh, he, was, he was really, leading those studies within Jules's larger um, laboratory. And um, so they discovered the toll pathway was important for part of the, the story and made uh, Bruno and Jules also discovered a separate pathway called the IMD pathway that was, is also very important. 
those two pathways have some important similarities. In particular, they both activate a certain kind of transcription factor called NF-kappa-B, which is also really important in the human and mouse and the mammalian uh, innate immune response. NF-kappa-B is kind of one of the critical transcription factors of innate immunity. So you have this, this similarity and you, you can study flies and maybe learn something about mammals. And in fact, Jules' group showed the toll pathway was important. And shortly thereafter, Charlie's group with Ruslan Metatov and um, Bruce Boitler's group. And uh, Bruce was one of the other Nobel Prize winners, showed that the uh, human TLRs were playing a very similar role in activating the innate immune response in, in mouse and in, in human cells. Um, the third person on that, so Jules, so they, they the, you know, Nobel Prize is funny, right? They, they can give it only to three people and they can split it different ways. They can do like one third, one third, one third, or they can actually give it to two different discoveries and, and, and like two people get yeah. half and the third person gets it. So that year, the prize was split in half and Ralph Steinman, who died like days before the um, prize yeah. was announced because he had cancer. Um, I think he had pancreatic cancer, but I don't, I don't remember exactly. He was battling cancer for a decade. Um, and it was very unusual because you can't win when you're deceased. That's another rule. But they announced it. And then I think the next day he, he died. So he still won, even though he couldn't attend the ceremony. Um, he went for the discovery of dendritic cells, which are a certain kind of cell in the immune system, kind of white blood cell that's really, really important. Uh, part of the innate immune response that talks to the adaptive immune response. So there's important communication that has to happen for say a B cell to get activated and make those antibodies that we all want to protect us from say a coronavirus. Uh, so he won half the prize for the discovery of um, dendritic cells and then Jules Hoffman and Bruce Boitler won half the prize. Very, very interesting, so, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, but this guy Beaumont, he gets the short shift. He, his, his, his stuff was, critical to to at foundation for 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 these discoveries charlie charlie janeway who also died young from uh cancer also his thinking about the whole problem was really important um uh, but and hans's uh, discovery the antimicrobial peptides uh is central to the to the whole whole tale so it really you know it took I think Hans's first paper on this was 1972, if I remember correctly. And then uh, the first toll paper about toll and immunity in Drosophila was 1990, 96, might've been 96, 97, you know, so over, over 20 years to go from there, from that initial discovery to Nobel prize winning work. Um, and then there's this whole other story of where toll was originally discovered which is fascinating. I can tell you about it if you want to hear about it. But it was discovered not because its initial discovery had nothing to do with immunology. And its initial discovery was because it's involved in the um, early embryonic development, the early embryonic patterning of the Drosophila embryo. Totally, a totally distinct role for this protein and the whole pathway. So, so there's also some serendipity. Very, very interesting. Uh, and now I think we will change some gears and you know, really, really uh, get into a profession. I think, what is the least and most exciting part uh, uh, about your profession? Oh, the least exciting? Yeah, yeah, most, the least uh, exciting. most uh, yeah. The least exciting are all the boring meetings I have to attend. Um, I kid you not. Okay. Uh, so as a uh, faculty member, 
as a faculty member now, finished graduate school, did a postdoc, got a job as a faculty member. I run a research lab, right? So I have to um, I manage what goes on in the lab. So I have six, seven, eight people in the lab. I, you know, I talk to them a lot. We talk about experiments and results and that's all really fun. New discoveries, that's the best thing. When somebody walks into my office or nowadays they Zoom with me because we're not doing anything in person and they have a new, and they show me new data. Like here's a graph, here's a picture, here's a, here, here's a big Excel spreadsheet, look at this. And there's some new discovery and that's, those are the best days. Those are the best days. And it's not every day, right? It's not every day. It's sometimes not even once a month. Um, though that's, that's fabulous. But, you know, other things I do, I have to, you know, I'm involved in teaching and I'm involved in helping run uh, our graduate program. And um, all that stuff takes a lot of coordination and communication. So there's a lot of, a lot of time spent uh, in meetings with my colleagues and um, sometimes they're a little dull. I don't, I don't, too many meetings. I can, I can be working. Uh, but uh, still, I think you have spent many years uh, in, in this uh, immunology field. Uh, and what has been your toughest challenge till now? That made you toil very hard. Well, I think the toughest challenge, the toughest challenges stay the same. So the, the lab, the lab and the work in the lab gets performed um, by graduate students and postdocs. I, I, I sometimes, like right now, I have a, a research associate lab manager who helps with some of the stuff. Um, but the team is always changing. Students graduate and they go on to do other things with their life. Postdocs wanna get quote unquote real jobs where they're gonna earn a better living and be in charge of their own science or maybe they leave science and do something else, whatever they want to do. So it's, it's always constant. So um, managing the personnel is really, that's a constant challenge that I toil on uh, all the time. And er everybody who works in the lab is different. You know, every single person in the, it's kind of amazing people, right? Um, every, everybody's different, right? And you have Everyone's to- a different approach uh, the thinking. A, a different approach and a different personality. And you, you have to, I have to adjust how I interact with everybody to try and help them get the most out of their experience in, in my lab. Cause all those, those positions as graduate students or postdocs, they're training, training positions. So I'm supposed to be teaching them about how to be a scientist. So uh, I, I try and adjust my approach and I try, you know, you try and keep track of who's going when and when you're going to hire somebody new and, you know, and the added complication that I sleep over sometimes is, the money is not constant, right? So a big part of my job is writing grants. So I'm constantly writing grants. I'm constantly chasing money um, to do to do our experiments. Where does the money go? The biggest thing the money goes to is to pay the salaries of myself and everybody in the lab. And of course, all the stuff that we buy is very expensive as well. Reagents, um, enzymes, chemicals, plasticware. Uh, the animals cost money. Um, so I'm constantly writing a grants. I, I, I submitted two grants in the last two weeks. For example, I'll submit one next month and I have a plans to submit one and a new grant in June and a, another one in July and hopefully one in September. That's my year writing grants. So just so you know, I'm not exaggerating. I'm writing grants all the time and it's a little relentless. So that's not 
always the most pleasant thing of my job about my job, but it's critical because there's no money, then the experiments come to a halt and then the data comes to a halt and then the whole operation falls apart and I'll have to find something new to do with my life. Um, so yeah, so those are, those are some of the, the big challenges that I have is, 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 is balancing those things and um, trying to uh, optimize uh, everybody's experience in my lab as well as the productivity coming out of my lab. And I'm, I'm not always successful. Sometimes we do better than others. Sometimes some projects take a long time to come to fruition and it can be quite frustrating, but, but we get there. So my question is, I think that a lot of people come with certain preconceived notions when they are, you know, entering the research lab, especially graduate assistants, or certain people would have assumed certain things about your career, like what would a person running a research lab would do? So what are some of the things which have been like sort of myths or just assumptions and not completely true uh, that people have they say, talked about to you? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good question. I think there's there's a lot of assumptions. So we can like making talk about assumptions people make about what it's like to work in a lab like um you know especially if you're you're a graduate student a postdoc and you're actively in the lab and i think a lot of people who are not in science assume it's kind of a sterile environment with a lot not a lot of people interaction like here well i'm a people person i don't i don't think lab lab work is for me i'd rather go be a doctor um and that's just, I think that's just totally wrong because the laboratory is a very social environment. You know, everybody in my lab works on things that are related to each other and they better be talking to each other all the time about their science because what person number one is doing relates to what person number two is doing. Maybe if they talked a little bit, they'd have some brilliant idea for an, an experiment they could do together that would just blow the whole thing open. Um, so, I, you know, I actively try and encourage those interactions and and, you know, and we also just socialize just for fun, just to, you know, keep the environment uh, fun. And uh, our laboratories at my university are like a big open space. So I have, I have three bays, um, but there's 26 bays in this giant room. So we're also talking to the people working in the labs next door. When it's not the middle of pandemic, we're lunching, we're having lunch together, we're having joint group meetings together. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of a lot of talk, a lot of inter, a lot of social interaction. Some of it's purely social, but a lot of it like sort of science social, like talking about your project, talking about your experiments, going to talk to this guy down the hall or upstairs about how they do this assay. So it's actually really interactive people facing um, occupation. So that's one misconception. Um, another misconception when I tell people I'm a professor, they ask me what I teach and I tell them with a straight face as little as possible. And they look at me and they go, what? huh? And I laugh. I go, well, my, my, my real job is research. Like I'm running a research lab. That's what I do. I do do some teaching, but uh, oh, okay. Well, but what do you teach them? I teach immunology. Like they can't, like if they hear a professor, they are just assuming I'm spending most of my day in the classroom and you can't convince some people of otherwise that that's not what, professors that research institutions do with most of their time those are the those are the two big assumptions and misconceptions that i uh, that i i see a little bit trivial but that's what i see uh you know uh, you belong to american education system yeah i know you 
uh, you grew through that and uh, what if i give you a chance uh, and you know return to that and you know change some parts of that education system that you don't like uh, and and what what is going wrong uh, in the overall education system in the world i'm not an expert on education i mean i'm an educator um but i'm you know i'm not an academic uh in the education field. So I, I feel like I'm maybe getting out of my, my uh, area expertise here, but what, from what I see, um, I would like to see at the, at the college level in the life sciences, cause that's what I know, less emphasis on memorizing facts and more focus on the experimental um, approaches that provided the understanding. Uh, I think it, it, it's it's more interesting. It's more engaging to uh, to try and understand how people actually did these experiments. You know, how do we know that genes are encoded in DNA, right? Just very, very basic. And uh, if you graduate in life science, you should know the classic experiment um, done by those guys at Rockefeller, Avery, McCarty, McLeod, I think were the authors. I might have the order wrong. Or they showed that... Um, DNA was responsible for transforming one strain of smooth uh, pneumococcus into a rough strain uh, of pneumococcus. And it turns out the rough strain's virulent, I think, and the smooth strain's not. I, I don't remember exactly. And so they were, and they showed that they could, this transforming principle, they purified it and it was DNA. And that was the first experiment really to show that DNA contained genetic material. And that, you know, it took, a, that paper was published and it didn't like the whole world didn't change. It took a while before people realized they brought it. Anyways, I digress. I'd like to see more emphasis. That's my answer to your question on the experimental basis of our knowledge and less emphasis on memorizing facts. If you go to a big university and you rely on um, the classes, rely on multiple choice tests. It, um, it's hard to get away from just memorizing. You can with well-written test questions. I'm not good at writing those questions, but I, I definitely don't. You know, in graduate school, we don't. We we almost never use multiple-choice questions. Uh, yeah, I, I have the same problem uh, in in biology. You know, uh, the taxonomy uh, in the animal kingdom, plant kingdom, and you have to remember all those names. Uh, I look it up. I don't know any of that stuff. I forgot it the day after the exam when I was in college. Yeah, like that's like my brain's too small. Like I have no room for taxonomy. I mean, it's in Wikipedia. Just Google it. I mean, it's, uh, I think that's stupid to ask people to memorize that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, what if we, I think uh, in how to develop scientific thinking at a very young age. Uh, it is very important uh, if you go in research or I think any background, I think scientific uh, uh, thinking is, is very important. Uh, whatever background you choose, how to think exactly is very important. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of that? It is, it is. Well, you know, if you're interested in science, I would encourage anybody of any age and parents uh, of young kids to experiment, like actually like try and figure things out. And experiments can be, you know, simple, like taking apart a toy or a bicycle or something like that, you know, especially if you're kind of more into engineering, like taking things apart, putting them back together, um, exploring the natural world. If, you know, if you're into the sort of botany, zoology type things, you know, 
score how many birds come to your bird feeder or what kind of birds show up. There's a lot of things you can do as a, as a citizen scientist and it doesn't need to be particularly um, fancy or sophisticated to start doing interesting things. You know, I, I send a bird feeder cause I got a bird feeder right, right up there. There's some birds in it's middle of winter, but there's some, some, some birds over there in the tree. Um, you know, you could change the food. Does it change the kind of birds that show up? There's, there's things you, you know, there's lots of little things you, you can do. Um, all sorts of ages. It does, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a PhD scientist to ask interesting questions and trying and try and explore them in the world around us. Because I, I just think that's way more interesting than trying to soak in facts, specific knowledge. You know, if you, if something gets you, if you're interested in something and you start exploring it, those, the, the, the things that underlie it, that we already know, you'll pick up and you'll absorb and you'll know them um, without even trying. And the fun part is the exploring and the, you know, I still love discover. Like I told you, I got into this because I wanted to discover new things. And that's still my favorite day when somebody in the lab has some new results and they come show me and it's just even if I'm, my, my original idea was all wrong, it's still a great day. Look at that, that hypothesis was totally wrong. We had it backwards, you know, <laughs> whatever. Nobody knew this 30 minutes ago and now we know this. That's the, that's the best feeling. Um, I have one question. So if you had to take like a futuristic view of the profession that is like biomedical research, how do you think, uh -huh. say, like say even 10 years or 30 years down the line would uh, the field evolve? So what is your perspective on oh, how yeah. the future of biomedical research? And if you would have asked me that 20 years ago, I would have gotten it totally wrong. So I'm not sure I'm good at prog prognosticating. You know, the, the big change that's happened in the last 10, 10 or so years is the ability to sequence things, massive amounts of sequencing data through totally new technology to sequence. That's totally changed the way we do a lot of things in the laboratory. Um, you know, it affects the life sciences, but it affects all of us too, to some degree. This is how then these new variants of the coronavirus were discovered by, by, by sequencing them, uh, which 20 years ago would have taken months and months and months and now it takes a couple of days, um, a couple hours even, if you have a pipeline set up. Um, so what's, what's the next big revolution? Um, I, think, I think sequencing is still gonna be it's still going to be huge. There's still going to be, there's going to be more advances in sequencing and you're going to be able to read, read more sequences more fast and from more smaller samples and read longer reads. I think there's, I think that technology is continuing to advance at uh, breakneck speeds and it's going to change, continue to change the way we think and do about, uh, do experiments in, in the biomedical sciences. Um, and other, another big change um, that's happening. So this isn't even prognostication. This is happening. It has to do with CRISPR, right? So you guys yeah. probably heard about CRISPR, and you can use CRISPR to to, to engineer genetics. Uh, we call the yeah, in 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 the DNA. You can make we call that mutants. We you can make yeah, designer if, if mutants. I, if I remember, clustered, uh, regular, uh, interspaced. Uh, palindromic mm -hmm. repeats, right? Uh, so you, you're, yeah, your memory. I did a research paper. I, 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 yeah. Oh, I need a paper on that. Uh, so that technology is rapidly um, advancing too. That's, you know, there's the original CRISPR system, which is CRISPR-Cas9, and there's a 
a bunch of other ones that are also derived from different bacteria that can be sort of utilized in similar manners that have different properties. So that's really gonna change. We're gonna be able to safely uh, manipulate human embryos if we so want to. I mean, that's an ethically fraught thing uh, in the very near future. And we're gonna have, as a society, we're gonna have to figure out how to regulate that properly. And in the laboratory, it means we can, in our favorite genetic model systems, do amazing things to try and understand how genes and proteins work. Um, but it also like another revolution there is coming because you can use CRISPR to genetically engineer organisms that aren't typically used in the laboratory or were, were not typically used in the laboratory at least 10 years ago because there was no good way to manipulate their genome. But now you can do CRISPR in almost any genome you want to if you if that's, you know, if you want to study ants and how they, you know, ants are social insects, right? They form these colonies. There's lots of cool questions about ants. I think people are doing CRISPR in ants and you can CRISPR different bacteria genomes that you couldn't use. So CRISPR is going to be amazing and it's going to open up new areas of biology to study at the molecular and genetic level that, that weren't available. It's going to uh, revolutionize medicine, um, uh, not just in embryos, because you can also take cells out of somebody's body do something with CRISPR to change your cells and, and put them back. That, there's already therapies like that. that yeah, we have ethical questions to answer over there, I think, uh, many. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. I mean, especially embryo manipulation is particularly yeah. ethically fraught. Um, uh, I think it would change the whole uh, human gene pool, uh, I think, in the whole, uh, coming years. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is irreversible change, I think. <laughs> what I think, it, it is irreversible change uh, in yeah. a human gene pool. And, so that's the question, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're manipulating the germline, right? So you're doing it in embryos, it's absolutely true. If you're like programming a T cell to attack a cancer cell and then putting it back in your body, that's not changing the germline. So that's not irreversible. That's actually quite temporary. So it depends how you, how you, um, how you marshal these, these tools. So I think, I think the embryo question um, is really the key ethical thing that that we all need to think about. Um, I don't. I don't I know what read, how to, I think, how, to uh, how, 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 uh, how CRISPR is uh, you know, involved uh, can be involved in immun immunology too. Uh, how we can uh, write. Uh, I saw. Uh, I think um, in in rats uh, like uh, HIV virus about HIV virus, uh, and we can be immune yep. to HIV. Uh, we I think. Uh, uh, I don't, I'm not in, uh, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. So like the problem with HIV, right? So the problem with HIV is you can go on heart, right? A highly effective antiviral retroviral therapy, which is like a triple, I think it's a triple drug cocktail, right? You have a reverse transcriptase inhibitor, a protease inhibitor, and a fusion inhibitor. And you can get your the, the patient's level of HIV in the blood down to almost to indetectable levels. But then if you take those pe those pe patients off the drugs, inevitably in most patients, like 99% of the patients, the HIV comes back when you take them off the drug because the HIV is hiding somewhere, right? HIV is a retro uh, virus. So it's RNA and it gets, when it gets into the cell, it gets reverse transcribed into DNA and inserts into your genome. So it's a literally hiding in some cells somewhere in your body in the DNA, and then you take away the drugs, it, it slowly starts to come back. And so 
you have these these latent infections somewhere and the, the the problem is how do you tap how do you get rid of those to really cure somebody to get really get rid of the the virus and the viral genome so you can take them off the drugs and because the drugs have side effects right i mean people are on those drugs for the rest of their life but you know they're hard on the body um so there are definitely people trying to use crispr to attack those those latent pro viral uh, genomes that are hiding in cells. There's a lot of interesting questions because like what cells are they in? Um, can the immune response tackle? There's a lot of, CRISPR is one of many things that are going on in that area. That's a very interesting and important area of study in HIV right now, trying to get those reservoirs of, uh, of HIV. But if you knew where they were and you knew how to deliver CRISPR there, you could design CRISPR to go cut and cut out and remove that HIV and maybe get rid of it. That's sort of the idea. I would like to ask, like, like you had taken a lot of detours in your career, like you experimented a lot. So if you had to give anybody, say, an advice to design their own life, or just like design their career, what advice would you give to anybody in that regard? Because you've experimented a lot, and I think you would have something like a good and a great unique advice for anybody in any career. Uh, in that uh, yeah, I don't know about any career, but so I'll, I'll, I'll answer mine in sort of, I'll narrow my scope to a career in life sciences, especially in academia. Um, my advice is, is to find projects that you're really passionate about. You know, everybody's different. Some people want to cure important diseases, whether it be AIDS or COVID-19 or, or cancer. Other people just want to understand how the natural world works. Other people really like it, sort of the idea of engineering and tinkering with things and figure out how to how things work and, um, make new things that work better or to their design. Find what find it, what it is that you really like to do. Find a project that really um, excites you and be passionate about it. Um, I think that's the first thing. Um, and re remember, you know, when you're on a project, it, you're, it's not your whole life. You got to get the project to some sort of end point. You don't have to, but the linear way mm -hmm. through the science careers, get that to some end point. And then you can move on to some other project if you get sort of tired of that project. You know, you know, I did that at graduate school. I had had enough of that project and that topic by the time I finished graduate school. And I, I took a left turn and did something something else. I, want, I needed something fresh and, and new. Uh, and, and that's fine. I was excited about that project at the beginning. And then um, I was ready for a new a new topic. And then my other advice is find people that you like to work with and for your lab mates, your advisors, your colleagues. These people really make your day to day um, better or worse. And it's not just that you like them and you want to go out and have a beer with them after work, which is nice sometimes, but it's not necessary. You know, some people have families and they have to get home, but that they're good colleagues. So they're, they're respectful, they're thoughtful. When you ask them for help, they, they help you, whether it's you know with some reagent you might need or teaching them how to do some sort of protocol, um, um, but they're, they're genuinely helpful and collaborative and interactive and that they're smart. You wanna be around smart people and smart people don't only live at the fanciest schools. There's smart people all over the globe and you, and you, wanna, you wanna find them and bring them together because they'll make you smarter too because you get them thinking about 
your problem. They, they might have some, some brilliant ideas. Um, so projects you enjoy, move on to new projects when you've had enough people you enjoy, smart people you enjoy interacting with and um, always spend some part of your time just thinking about your, your project and, and what you're working on, thinking, reading the literature, going to seminars. Um, when things are uh, looking bleak, it's good to take a few days off and regroup and think about it and maybe go to a conference or a bunch of seminars and, and learn some new things and get inspired to do something, something new. Life's too short to be miserable. So on this high note, uh, we can end uh, this podcast. And thank you, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anish Silverman, for coming on this podcast. Um, uh, it was very, very knowledgeable. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it very much. And we'll be considering immunology for research. Uh, thank you very much. Good. Good luck to you finishing up high school. And I hope you find a spot in a nice university that you love. And you have some great instructors who um, focus on experiments and not memorization. And it was and uh, good luck on the literature and the advertising too. It was nice to it was nice to talk to you both. Nice to meet, meet with you. Let me know when the podcast is, is done so I can. I check it out. Definitely, sure. definitely. Thank, Thank you. Much. Bye. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.